It is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. That's a quote from Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes of the U.S. Supreme Court in 1925. Those who are physically and mentally unhealthy and unfit must not perpetuate their sufferings in the bodies of their children. Through educational means, the state must teach individuals that illness is not a disgrace, but a misfortune for which people are to be pitied. Yet at the same time, it is a crime and a disgrace to make this affliction the worse by passing it on to innocent creatures out of merely egotistic yearning. That's a quote from Adolf Hitler from his book Mein Kampf, also spoken in 1925. It's no secret that we humans have been trying to make better humans for a long time. A long time. Some people take it too far. For example, the Nazis. And others have more earnest ideals in mind. They want to cure disease, maybe make people live a little longer. But can humans really handle the responsibility of DNA editing, of gene editing? Will we be able to resist the temptation of designer babies? I don't think that's possible. People say eugenics is for the best. I'm not sure. But one thing's for certain, the technology is here. And it's up to humanity to govern it. What happens when life is stranger than fiction? Or when the antagonist wins because we have no idea who they are? Or when the so-called perfect crime is committed and society is left dumbfounded and petrified? Or in this case, what if the government themselves are creating the so-called crime? Well, we do what we can do. We spread the word. We talk. We discuss. We network. That's all we can do. This episode lies a little more on the strange than the unexplained. But nonetheless, I'm your host, Michael. And I would like to personally thank you for listening to the show. This is a True Crime Guys production. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained. Okay, so first, let me preface this episode by saying that my original intentions were to maybe convince people that eugenics have been around for a long time and to convince people that most countries were involved of, with some type of eugenics um, as early as the 1920s, uh, like some of the phrases, some of the uh, quotes that I read to you at the beginning. But as I as I dug into it, that just seemed more and more obvious to me. That's that's kind of a no-brainer. Every I think I'm buying that. I think everyone is buying that. I mean, the Holocaust alone is proof that people have been trying to make better people. But what I think is more important is where we're at right now with technology. That is the scariest part. I'm sure some of you have heard of this technology called CRISPR. Um, it's basically a genome 
editing, uh, DNA editing tool. I, I'm not going to get into all the scientific terms and bore the hell out of you. I'm basically going to, to preface this by saying I am not a scientist, okay, by any means. But I do kind of understand how this works, and I want to help you understand how that how this works. Because I think the more people that know about this, the better off we'll be moving forward with this type of technology. Because it's up to everyone, and, and I say everyone, I mean humanity, to govern this type of technology. That's how serious that it can be. And basically what this is, is CRISPR is like a cut and paste tool for mammal DNA. I mean, we can, we will have the technology, or we already do, have the technology to bring back species. Like, they're saying that we have the, the capabilities of bringing back the woolly mammoth, right? Or, or curing disease, or, or God forbid, designer babies. Designer babies scares the, scares the hell out of me. I think it should scare the hell out of a lot of people. I mean, imagine that. Imagine being at the park... Uh, one of the gentlemen I saw that that, made, that was that was giving a speech or or a lesson on this CRISPR technology. It, he was very uh, he was very non biased. He was very fair. Right? There's a lot of good things that can come from this CRISPR technology. There's a a lot of things, but but there's also a lot of horrible things, and I just don't think humanity can can handle it. I don't think that can be governed without without the whole world getting involved. I think if you just left this up to scientists, I think it's just in their natural instinct into their their natural curiosity to see how far it can go. Right? Can we make maybe not superhumans, but can we make uh you know, super immune humans? Humans that don't get sick? Right? Humans that are taller, humans that can run faster, be stronger, but then that raises the bar for everyone. Right, and then he had these terms that he used for people who were, uh, what would you say? I guess unaltered. They would be considered a natural. And they're talking about this kind of technology as soon as twenty thirty. That's only in the next decade. Ten years is nothing. That's a drop in the bucket when you're talking about designer babies. Imagine, imagine being at the playground or. Something and you you're, you're seeing your child swinging on the swing, right? This was a this was a vision a, a visual that was that he gave uh, to the audience that kind of stuck with me. But he said, imagine your child is swinging on the swing, right? They're a mess. Their hair's all all a mess. Their nose is running, you know. They're kicking out of time. They're not swinging very good. And then there's this other child beside them. You know, their hair is thick and 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 lush, and they have this beautiful, uh, you know unaltered skin, they're not sick, they're kicking with with strength, they're jumping out of the swing, doing a backflip, whatever. It's like, how do you as a parent feel now that you didn't give your child that type of it, that type of jump in life? How do you how do you deal with that? And also, how does your child feel about you as they grow and all the top all the top performers in their class? or on their team, or, you know, in their groups, or whatever, are all GM babies, genetically modified babies. How do you deal with that? As a parent, how do you, how do you contain what is natural? How do you contain your belief in what is natural? You know, and it just, uh, 
Because you also have to think that when you genetically modify a child, their children are going to be genetically modified because it's in their DNA. It's not some kind of, it's not some kind of, you know, electrical impulses and things. It's, you're not making a RoboCop. You're making a better human genetically. So it's still natural to a certain extent. And that can be passed. It's, it's like they've cracked the code of humans. Like this is, this is terrifying to me. People are talking about, not, and it's not only humans, it's mammals in general. People are talking about wiping out entire species that are threatening to humans. Imagine, I, I can't even imagine, I can't even, I can't even begin to grasp the consequences of doing things like that. But it's right over the horizon. And it's, and it's something that we all should know about. So I wanted to preface this episode with this, with this speech. I'm sorry, I, I got a little long-winded here. We'll go back into the history of eugenics in a minute. But I wanted to preface it with that. Because the I ain't buying it part is not that I ain't buying that people are trying to make better humans. I totally believe that. What I'm not buying is that this new CRISPR technology is, is the best thing for humanity. I, I'm not buying that right now. It's, it's displayed as this, as this cheap, as this easy uh, technology that is going to fix disease. I, I just, I feel like humanity has been chasing the miracle serum since we've been around. And I, just, I think there's just some things you don't mess with. And I think DNA is one of those things. And thank God I'm not alone. There are much more influential and more intelligent people who agree with me. Uh, I want to play you a segment from a TED Talk done by biologist Paul Knopfler. The and evolution and genetics it profoundly have impacted humanity, who we are today. And some think there's like a social Darwinism at work in our world, and maybe even a eugenics as well. Imagine those trends, those forces, with a booster rocket of this CRISPR technology that is so powerful and so ubiquitous. And in fact, we can just go back one century to the last century to see the power that eugenics can have. So my father, Peter Knopfler, was actually born right here in Vienna. He was Viennese. And he was born here in 1929. And when my grandparents had little baby Peter, the world was very different, right? It was a different Vienna. The United States was different. The world was different. There was a eugenics rising. And my grandparents realized pretty quickly, I think, that they were on the wrong side of the eugenics equation. And so despite this being their home and their whole extended family's home, and this whole, this area, you know, being their family's home for generations, they decided because of eugenics that they had to leave. And they survived, but they were heartbroken. And I'm not sure my dad ever really got over leaving Vienna. He left when he was just eight years old in 1938. So today, I see a new eugenics kind of bubbling to the surface. It's supposed to be a kinder, gentler, positive eugenics, different you know, than all that past stuff. But I think even though it's focused on trying to improve people, it could have negative consequences. And it really worries me that some of the top proponents of this new eugenics, they think CRISPR is the ticket to make it happen. 
So I have to admit, you know, eugenics, you know, we talk about making better people. It's a tough question, you know, what is better when we're talking about a human being? But I admit, I think maybe a lot of us could agree that, you know, human beings, maybe we could use a little betterment. You know, look at our politicians here, you know, back in the U.S., God forbid we go there right now. Um, you know, maybe even if we just look in the mirror, there might be ways we think, you know, we could be better. You know, I might wish, honestly, that I had more hair here, you know, instead of baldness. Some people might wish they were taller, have a different weight, you know, a different face. Um, if we could do those things, we could make those things happen, or we could make them happen in our children, it would be very seductive. And yet, coming with it would be these risks. I talked about eugenics, but there would be risks to individuals as well. So if we forget about enhancing people and we just try to make them healthier using genetic modification, this technology is so new and so powerful that by accident, we could make them sicker. You know, that easily could happen. And there's another risk, and that is that all of the legitimate, important genetic modification research going on just in the lab, again, no interest in designer babies, a few people going the designer baby route, things go badly. That entire field could be damaged. I also think it's not that unlikely that governments might start taking an interest in genetic modification. So, for example, our imagined GM Jenna child who is healthier, if there's a generation that looks like they have lower health care costs, it's possible that governments may start trying to compel their citizens to go the GM route. Look at China's one-child policy. It's thought that that prevented the birth of 400 million human beings. So it's not you know, beyond the realm of possible that genetic modification could be something that governments push. And if designer babies become popular, you know, in our digital age, viral videos, social media, what if designer babies are thought to be fashionable and they kind of become the new glitterate, right? The new Kardashians or something. <laughs> you know, are those trends that we really could control? Uh, you know, I'm not convinced that we could. So again, today, it's Halloween, and when we talk about genetic modification, there's one Halloween-associated character that is talked about or invoked more than anything else, and that is Frankenstein, right? Uh, mostly that's been you know, Franken-foods and all this other stuff. But if we, if we think about this now, and we think about it in the human context, on a day like Halloween, if parents can, in essence, costume their children genetically, you know, are we going to be talking about a Frankenstein 2.0 kind of situation? I don't think so. I don't think it's going to get to that extreme. But when we are going about hacking the human code, I think all bets are off in terms of what might come of that. There would still be dangers. And we can look in the past to other elements of transformative science and see how they can basically go out of control and permeate society. So I'll just give you one example, and that is in vitro fertilization. Exactly, almost exactly 40 years ago, test tube baby number one, Louise Brown, was born. And that's a great thing. And I think since then, five million IVF babies have been born, bringing immeasurable happiness. A lot of parents now can love those kids. 
But if you think about it, in four decades, five million babies being born from a new technology is pretty remarkable. And the same kind of thing could happen with human genetic modification and designer babies. So, depending on the decisions we make in the next few months, the next year or so, if designer baby number one is born, within a few decades, there could well be millions of genetically modified humans. And there's a difference there, too, because if we, you know, you and the audience or I, if we decide to have a designer baby, then their children will also be genetically modified, and so on, because it's heritable. So that's a big difference. So with all of this in mind, you know, what should we do? There's actually going to be a meeting a month from tomorrow in Washington, D.C., by the U.S. National Academy of Sciences to tackle that exact question. What is the right path forward with human genetic modification? I believe at this time, we need a moratorium. We have to ban this. We should not allow creating genetically modified people because it's just too dangerous and too unpredictable. But there's a lot of people... Thanks. And let me say, just as a scientist, it's a little bit scary for me to say that in public, because science, you know, generally doesn't like self-regulation and things like that. Um, so I think, you know, we need to put a hold on this. But there are many people who not only disagree with me, they feel the exact opposite. They're like, step on the gas, full speed ahead, let's make designer babies. And so... In the meeting in December and other meetings that are likely to follow in the next few months, it's very possible there may be no moratorium. And I think part of the problem that we have is that all of this trend, this revolution in genetic modification applying to humans, the public hasn't known about it. Nobody has been saying, look, you know, this is a big deal, this is a revolution, and this could affect you in very personal ways. And so, Part of my goal is actually to change that and to educate and engage with the public and get you guys talking about this. And so I hope at these meetings that there'll be a role for, for the public you know, to bring their voice to bear as well. So if we kind of circle back now to 2030 again, that Imagine story, and depending on the decisions we make again today, literally we don't have a lot of time in the next few months, the next year or so, because this technology is spreading like wildfire. Let's pretend we're back in that reality, we're at a park, and our kid is swinging on the swing. You know, is that kid a regular old kid, or did we decide to have a designer baby? And let's say we, we went the sort of traditional route, and there's our kid swinging on the swing, and frankly, you know, they're kind of a mess, you know, their hair is all over the place like mine, Uh, they have a you know, stuffy nose. They're not the best student in the world. They're adorable. You love them. But they're on the swing next to them. Their best friend is a GM kid. And the two of them are kind of swinging like this, and you can't help but compare them, right? And the GM kid is swinging higher. They look better. They're a better student. They don't have that stuffy nose you need to wipe. You know, how is that going to make you feel? And what decision might you make next time? Thank you. Okay, so now that Paul has terrified you of present times and the future of eugenics, let's take a step back 
and let's relax a little bit because humanity has always been on this course. So let's go back and retrace our steps and let's figure out how we ended up here. Way before we started working with DNA, we, were, we had to wait and see what humans turned out like, right? And then we had to decide whether or not they would be, they would be uh, good to go, good to reproduce or not. You know, people made that decision. Scientists made that decision as, as far back as the 1930s, even here in America. You know, I mean, they were taking it to the extreme in Germany, but here in America, we were still sterilizing people in our prisons, in our mental institutions. Up to 60,000 people were reported sterilized in the U.S. in the 1930s. And it's no surprise this type of thinking has been around since the beginning of the ego. So basically, since humans. But in the late 19th century, Michigan and Massachusetts, they castrated numerous young men with such charges as epilepsy, imbecility, and masturbation. So you're talking late 19th century, the 1800s, right? Imbecility, they, they castrated them for epilepsy, imbecility, masturbation with the weakness of mind. Why are you castrating them for masturbating? How are they going to reproduce by masturbating? This is the kind of thing that I'm talking about. I, I mean, it doesn't, isn't everyone have a weak mind when they masturbate? That's one thing, I, I just don't get it. But anyways, it's neither here nor there. But castration eventually became a little harsh for the public to handle, so they started performing vasectomies on men and salpingectomies on women. A salpingectomy is the surgical removal of one or both uh, fallopian tubes. Fallopian tubes allow eggs to travel from the ovaries to the uterus. So there's your little biology lesson if you're not sure. But no matter how you look, you see a lot of the same terminology when studying eugenics. You see terminology like idiots, imbeciles, morons. They're all very subjective and broad terms, in my opinion. You know, I believe if you ask 10 people of 10 different backgrounds, ethnicities, beliefs, whatever, what a moron is, you're going to get 10 different answers. Hell, if you took 10 morons and asked them the same question, you're going to get 10 different you're going to get 10 more different answers. You see what I'm saying? So at at some point, it boils down to who has the most influence on the scientific data. And that was what was so scary about these early eugenics practices because you had um you had these rich influential people who were most of the time white, you know, European descent or Spanish descent. And they were, um, they were controlling this because they were funding this scientific research. Why are these, what interest do these scientists have who are getting to do what they love every day? What interest do they have in reporting data that does not satisfy these, these rich people who are funding their research? Right? So, I mean, they would judge one's behavior. These scientists would judge one's behavior and decide whether or not it was appropriate. But like I said, they have a lot of weight on their shoulders at this time. These scientists did. Their funding was in the balance. What if they said that the race of one of their major funders was an inferior race? Then what? And you know, it is, it is interesting a little uh, interesting tidbit. No scientist has ever deemed their own race inferior, no matter what race they are. 
I don't know, comes as a surprise, right? So it looked as if this obsession with creating the perfect race of humans would go on forever. But finally, right? Finally, the Industrial Revolution happened. And now there was wealth to go around. So everyone can keep living and having offspring because we need people. We need, pe- we need more people. We need people to run machines. We need people to change the oil in these machines, to repair these machines, to clean them, to work ridiculous long hours, breathing asbestos, while making a fraction of what their bosses make, right? So who decides who gets more money, right? Who decides who gets the easy jobs? Social Darwinism. That's who. Social Darwinism was advocated by Herbert Spencer and others in the late 19th and 20th century and was used to justify political conservatism, imperialism, and racism and to discourage intervention and reform. So basically, the whole idea was you are what you are and where you are for a reason. It's not society's fault. It's just genetics. So don't revolt. Don't protest. It's pointless. You're all a bunch of morons, and that's where you belong right? It probably comes as no surprise to hear that society's most passionate advocates for eugenics are the rich, like I mentioned earlier. People like David Starr Jordan, president of Stanford University, he headed the nation's first bio lab devoted to building a better human. Damn if they didn't know how to phrase stuff, right? That sounds awesome. Nation's first bio lab devoted to building a better human. Yeah, let's do it. I'm behind that, right? But Miss E.H. Harriman, She's another one, right? She gave the ERO, which is the Eugenics Records Office, a $15,000 grant and covered the staff's salaries. Are you beginning to get this picture? John D. Rockefeller, he also helped fund the ERO. John Harvey Kellogg, the first ever, he held the first ever race betterment conference in Battle Creek, Michigan. But at least he made Rice Krispie Treat cereal though, right? I mean, gosh, that makes up for all those wrongdoings. I'm kidding. But these plutocrats had their fingers and their money all up in the science of eugenics, mainly to prove they they pretty much had the same goals, and they were to prove that blacks were stupid, Jews were greedy, Mexicans were lazy, and women were nutty. Not rich white women, of course. And of course, the contrary, that rich white folks with good manners and table etiquette were genetically superior. Right? That kind of bullshit. Kind of some stuff we're still fighting now. There's still some stereotypes that have really hung around because of this kind of bullshit, this kind of quote-unquote scientific research. But what sparked all this was a piece by Sir Francis Galton, where he noticed that eminent members of British society had eminent parents. Oh, wow. What a genius he was. But Galton was so puzzled by this, apparently, that he could think of no better reason for this other than genetics. So thanks, Galton. So let's fast forward to the 1960s, right? Columbia University psychologist Henry Garrett claimed that people of African lineage are 200,000 years behind those of fairer complexions. Seriously? This was in the 1960s. This was just after, this was during the battle of desegregation, right? And he's saying that African Americans are 200,000 years behind those of fairer complexions. It just, it, it just blows my mind. Right in the middle of the civil rights movement, you got this guy publishing works that condemned desegregation and sexual mingling of blacks and whites, which he called breeding down. Yikes. The Pioneer Fund, another great example, which was established in 1937, 
to, quote, study into the problems of human race betterment, was still handing out grants in 1989. Like the $174,000 grant they gave Linda Godfredson. She was a researcher from Delaware University. They gave her this grant to study the relation between race and job performance. $174,000 in 1989. Some serious money. Now here's a quote from the Pioneer Fund president, Harry Wire. He says, The Pioneer Fund is not racist, but concerned about problems of heredity in the human race. You see how they get around this? They justify their own racism and their own, uh, their own insecurities, really, with saying that it's not our fault that these people are infer- inferior. We're just letting you know that these people are inferior. It's a vicious cycle, right? You have the rich supplying the funding for these scientists so these scientists can supply the the theories and the hypothesis to these rich people that they want to hear so they can justify their actions. It's just, it's a sick cycle, right? And it's still going on now. You have to, you have to believe, even though this CRISPR technology is cheap, still, once someone, there's, there's actually a patent on it right now that's being fought over. There's two universities that are fighting over the patent. I, I can't remember their names right now. It's really not that important. But once one of those universities gets this patent, people are going to have to pay a hefty research fee. And then this technology will no longer be cheap. Do you understand? This technology will no longer be cheap. So the rich the well-off, the wealthy, they'll be the only ones that, that will be able to afford this type of thing. And therefore, this, ter- this just turns our society into to more, even more and more of a separation between the upper and lower classes. It has to be. William Shockley, he was a Nobel Prize winning electronics pioneer. And he was also a believer in the pioneer fund philosophy. So much that he proposed in total seriousness that he would give anyone who scored less than 100 on an IQ test he would give them $1,000 for every point they were below 100 if they had themselves sterilized, right? So you take the IQ test, say you score a 90, you're 10 points below 100. If you go get sterilized and show him proof, then you get $10,000. I'm guessing that was doctor's note or whatever because, uh, I mean, I'm sure you're not showing him your castration surgery at this time. I think that we were, we were beyond that at least. So... You were showing him, I guess, doctor's orders that you had indeed been sterilized, had a vasectomy, or if you're a male, I mean, if you're a female, you had the uh, salpingectomy. So, but this was mainly offered to blacks. I think anybody could do it at the time, but it was kind of tongue-in-cheek, kind of a, a an elbow into the ribs, if you will, to black people, which is pretty damn shitty. Um... You know, also, side note, if I was in this time, I'd be so tempted to like, I already have three kids, right? I'd be tempted to, to take this, take this test and just flunk it. Go get a, go get a vasectomy and, and just fucking break this dude, man, right? I'll score like a three on that bitch. Give me 97 grand, man. Let's do it. I, I, I almost wrote my name right. <laughs> but this episode would not complete, be complete without the mention of one more very influential person in genetics and that man is Conrad Lorenz. He studied how behavior patterns were supposedly fixed 
by genetics. He was born in Austria, and he was accepted into Germany's Nazi Party on June 28, 1938. And in 1942, he wrote a paper basically calling for a self-conscious, scientifically-based race policy administered by our best individuals, quote, with the goal of implementing a, quote, more severe elimination of morally inferior human beings. The finished work was called On Aggression. And Lorenz was obviously trying to justify the actions of his political party at the time in Germany. Or trying to sway public opinion. Either way, this quote idea was already well underway in Nazi Germany. Regardless of worldwide protests from scholars everywhere, Lorenz went on to win a Nobel Prize for his bestseller On Aggression in Sweden in 1973. 40 years after this work was done. 30 years. I apologize. He wrote it in 1942. 30 years after. Okay? He's given a Nobel Peace Prize in Sweden. It just blows my mind. It, this is why it's so scary. There's, there is more people out there than you know that want to make a better race. There are people out there with such ego, with, with such narcissism, that they, they want to make all the people like them. And they have the money to put that kind of research into place, to put that kind of technology into place. Like I said at the beginning of this podcast... I think it's the responsibility of all of humanity to control this type of technology. It's up to us to be against it, or to be for it, or whatever we choose to do. Uh, regardless of what you believe, whether you believe in creation or evolution, I believe uh, things ended up this way for, maybe not for a reason, but for the betterment. I mean, look how many species we've already made extinct. Why do, why, do we des why do we deserve to live longer than them? Just because we're a little more self-aware? A little more intelligent? I, I don't know. I don't know what the reason is. But the technology is here. It's already here. There's no stopping it. There's no turning it back now. We could have designer babies in 10 years. That's just insane to me. It's absolutely insane. And if you're telling me that humans, that humankind, will take this technology and only use it for good, and only use it to, to cure you know, minute diseases, and to help other mammals, maybe bring back a species, even that, that maybe that's not good for other species. I don't know. I feel like humanity's trying to play God. And we've always, we've saw this coming. Right? Sci-fi movies and shows. It's always been right around the corner. Well, now it's here. So, I urge you to do your own research about this CRISPR technology. Form your own opinions. But try to stay up to date with this sort of thing. This is... This is something that you should be paying attention to. I know the news and media outlets are typically full of bullshit, but you notice you're not seeing a lot of this CRISPR technology out there on the news, are you? You're going to have to go find this on your own. But as always, guys, 
I appreciate you listening. Thank you for your time. I'm Michael, and this has been Strange and Unexplained, a True Crime Guys production. If you enjoyed the show, please review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you listen. A review is greatly appreciated. It's the best way to help the show. Another great way is patreon.com slash podcast. And for a monthly donation of just $3, you can get access to all of our Patreon content. All episodes will be released early. Some shorter episodes that I don't, you know, deem enough to be a full episode will also be pasted on Patreon as well. <laughs> pasted. Anyways, you can also follow us on social media at S&U Podcast. Sandu Podcast. Is that confusing enough? S and the word U Podcast. Okay, that's at Instagram, Twitter, and Strange and Unexplained on Facebook. Guys, thanks for listening. Keep creeping. And be strange, just don't be a stranger. <laughs> <laughs>